0: okay good morning all right today in church history we are getting a little closer to our times we are at the english reformation and at this point we'll start to focus just on english going forward before this we've been looking at all the christian world and then we looked at europe with the reformation and now we're zooming in on england we'll stay there for a bit and then come to america so this is our um Our goal here is to get up to modern times as close as possible. Usually, I don't cover all the way up to our own lifetimes because we pretty much know the history uh, generally, if we're familiar at all, with our own lifetime. But uh, I do want to get up through the mid-1900s, if possible, before we end this class at the end of May. So that's the goal. That's where we're headed. But I will spend some time. I have to warn you, I like the Puritans. So next week... We'll start the Puritans, maybe go two weeks on the Puritans. I want to give you recommendations and insight on each of the major Puritans. And then uh, from there, there, we'll speed it up again. So uh, let me open in prayer, and then we're going to do a book giveaway. Lord, I thank you so much for history, for your providence, for your common grace, and even how you have saved people throughout the last 2,000 years, how you've worked in men and women's hearts, to make them yours, to grow them in godliness, and to have an impact on the church. Help us to learn from that, to remember the things that we do learn, and apply them in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we talked about Arminianism versus Calvinism, and we looked at that historically, and roughly the five major arguments that were being looked at. As a result, the five points of Calvinism came about. Remember, first it was the five points of Arminianism. Then the Calvinists responded with their five points. Uh, they were the same issues being discussed, just different uh, theology on each side. So for the book giveaway, which is Stand Firm, John MacArthur, Stand Firm, Living in a Post-Christian Culture. So this is about how to stand firm as a Christian. It's a little short book, 140 pages. For the giveaway, tell me what the five points of Calvinism can be summarized as. And Derek, you can't answer. And Autumn, you can't answer. All right, everybody else is open. Michael. Tulip. There you go. Tulip. T-U-L-I-P. It's an easy way to remember it. It didn't happen in the Senate of Dort, but later in English. Somebody thought, hey, we can make a TULIP acronym out of that. So there you go. Read that book and uh, get back to me next week on how it went. All right, the English Reformation. Here we go. It took place in the 16th century. So we covered the Reformation in mainland Europe. That's Luther who started it. Then it comes to Switzerland with Zwingli and then Calvin. Luther's the preacher of the Reformation. He wrote a lot of books. He took the hits from the Roman Catholic Church. Then along comes Calvin. He's the systematizer. He's the theologian, also a preacher as well. But he wrote down the theology of it so that it could last up until today in book form. That was in the uh, 1500s. We're moving now towards the mid to late uh, 1500s, especially in England. And uh, next week we'll get into the 1600s. This English Reformation is going to tell us how England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, how the Anglican Church started, What happened with that famous or infamous guy, Henry VIII? Uh, While the Reformation in Europe was driven by a number of factors. So in Europe, the main issue was, yes, there was some nationalism, some nations splitting up. That was happening. There was the printing press. There was the original text of Scripture. That's a good thing, right? Let's get reformed according to the Greek of the New Testament. Not the Latin, but the original Greek. Let's get the Hebrew Scriptures Learned and studied again. That's a good thing. That's a that's a um, theological reformation based on the text. The reformation in England, though, it was all politics. It wasn't like somebody was sitting around saying, "Hey, let's go back to the sources." It, it eventually it just came down to politics. It came down to one man who wanted to uh, divorce his wife, and so he broke away from the Catholic Church. And that just goes to show you God can use. Sinful things. God can use uh, crooked sticks to draw a straight line. So let's talk about the precursors. We've, we've looked at these before. You remember John Wycliffe, an English professor at a, at a university. He was translating the Bible into English. He wanted to go out and preach to English-speaking people in English and give them a Bible in English that had been translated from the Latin. And his followers were called the Lollards. Wycliffe was not liked. Uh, He was really hated by the government, hated by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, But that had an influence. That planted some seeds in Roman Catholic England. Then Luther comes along and spreads his ideas throughout the mainland of Europe. And then comes over to England. William Tyndale starts translating the New Testament. And he actually lives during this time we're going to look at. So we'll come back to him today. And then remember, there's a group of men in Cambridge who met at the White Horse Tavern in the 1520s, and they're studying Luther's views. And so we have some very early martyrs who come out of this Hugh Latimer, Robert Barnes, John Frith, Thomas Bilney. They all died considered heretics by the Catholic Church. So these are some early English martyrs who were burned at the stake for either preaching in English or preaching against the Pope or teaching justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So this sets the stage for more to come in England. These men, they worked under hostile and adverse conditions. They were secret agents, people thought, who were after the king. And so the police would come in and they would find these these evangelical preachers, these reform people, and friends would turn them in. Manuscripts would get burned. You know, I think Tyndale lost and they took away his translations at one point when he was in jail. By 1530, Tyndale criticized the King of England. It's one thing to be trying to reform the church, which the king thought, that's undermining my government. But also to publicly criticize him for his unbiblical divorce. Uh, That's going to be an issue. So the king will get very angry at Tyndale and demand that the German authorities arrest him because he had fleed from England. He was eventually arrested in 1535. He's imprisoned. He affirmed the authority of Scripture. So there's an English reformer, Tyndale. We named our most recent son, middle name Tyndale, Lincoln Tyndale, after this man. He believed in the authority of Scripture. He believed in justification by faith. He opposed baptismal regeneration and Roman Catholic corruption. So his last words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The king of England was a staunch Catholic. The the dying words of Tyndale were supposedly, Lord, please open his eyes to the truth. Open his eyes. So that's just catching you up. All right, let's go to the infamous Henry VIII. Henry VIII, his time frame is 1509 to 1547. That's when he's king of England. And you're going to start to hear a lot of the more secular history, but this intertwines with church history. Remember, in ancient times, especially in the Middle Ages up through 1800s, the church and the government were intertwined. You could not split them like we do in America today. That's a new concept. Whoever the king worshipped, that's who his people worshipped. Whatever the form of worship the king had, that was what the people had. So if the king's Roman Catholic, the people are supposed to be Roman Catholic. And that's how Henry VIII starts out. He becomes king at 17 years old. So there's a young picture of him. Handsome guy, huh? Um, He's just married his brother's uh, widow for political reasons. Now she was very famous, very powerful. Catherine of Aragon. Aragon's a kingdom next to Spain. More importantly, she's the daughter of the king and queen of Spain. The famous king and queen of Spain who sent... Christopher Columbus out, who had all of this money coming in from the New World eventually. And they also retook all of Spain away from the Muslims. So Ferdinand and Isabella, he was very Catholic. He starts out very Catholic, very observant. He has a cardinal there that's very powerful, Cardinal Woolsey. But he's very susceptible to influence. His advisors, well, his friends, you know, the the story in the Bible where Solomon's son is influenced by his friends. Well, That can be both for good and for bad. In 1521, he even wrote a book against Martin Luther. And the Pope rewarded him with a title, Defender of the Faith. In fact, today, the royalty, the monarch of England still has this title, Defender of the Faith. And I think they wear a certain star or pendant to represent that. So it's kind of funny that he's going to break away from the Catholic Church, but the Pope at this time is calling him the defender of the faith because supposedly people thought his book was really good against Luther. Here's Catherine of Aragon. Uh, By the late 1520s, he wasn't so fond of her anymore. She did not produce any children, especially an heir. He needed a son to continue his line. And She did not produce a son. Finally, she had a daughter named Mary, who will um, come up a little bit later. But he wants a son. And in those days, you don't get a divorce. The only way to get a divorce is to convince the Roman Catholic Church that you were never together physically. And this person came into the marriage and lied. You could get it annulled. But once you were together, once you had had sexual intercourse, then the marriage could not be annulled. Well, he said, it was never a legitimate marriage to begin with, and we were never together intimately anyway. What about the daughter? Well, we'll just um, blur that line, he said, and I'm not going to worry about it. He wanted a divorce so he could find a new wife, produce a male heir. He asked the Pope for it. That's If you can't get your way in your own country with your cardinal, you just keep taking it up a level, and you go to the Pope. The Pope is now asked to annul the marriage. The pressure's on the Pope. The King of England's not like some of the other monarchs who are close to Italy, and the Pope has his fingers in those nations. England is an island nation. It's independent. It doesn't have near as much interaction with Spain and France and Germany and Italy. Well, the Pope refused. He's not going to do it. Why? Because it had been allowed by the previous Pope, the marriage had. And most importantly, guess who Catherine's nephew is? Her her mom and dad are big time in Spain, but her nephew is Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. You know, the guy who brought Luther when he was young, he had Luther come to the trial, the Diet of Worms. You've seen the movie where the, the Holy Roman Emperor is dressed in all this fancy stuff. That's him, Charles V. And his military is huge. In fact, the Pope owns some land, and the Pope has an army in this time, and Often, the Holy Roman Emperor, whoever it was, wanted to come down and teach the Pope a lesson. He'd just come down and attack the Pope's army and take over Rome. And so, in fact, earlier that year, Charles V had attacked Rome and taken the Pope prisoner for a short time. So if you didn't like the Pope's dealings, you didn't like his theology or his rulings about something in your kingdom, you just march down there and take over and make him do what you want. Well, the Pope's not going to have that happen again, so he doesn't want to make Charles mad, which means he can't agree to this divorce in England, because that'll send Catherine of Aragon packing, and her nephew's going to be very upset about that. Well, Henry says, I don't care. He says, I'm going to divorce her anyway. So he starts maneuvering things politically in England, and he convinces Parliament to side with him. So by this time, he had a parliament going. He had some men. They had really forced the king in the 1200s to give them representation. And the parliament sides with him against the pope. And so now he begins to make changes so he can make this divorce himself without the pope's without the popes say so. So he appoints a chief minister of the government, Thomas Cromwell. That's his chief minister. And they pass some laws. That limited the Catholic bishops, the Catholic priests. And they gave Henry more and more power. So Henry begins to take on more power over the church that he did not have before. So here's Cromwell here, a very serious looking guy. He'll have a famous uh, relative later on that will come up in the Puritan era. Thomas Cromwell helps him pass a new act through Parliament. And this is a famous act. It's called the Act of Supremacy in 1534. Here's what it did. It makes the king the head of the church. The king is now head of the church. And as head of the church, he can do as he pleases with the church. He can decide if he's going to get a divorce or not. Even today, officially, Elizabeth II is the governess, the supreme head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Now, she doesn't play a role actively in the church, but She is figuratively today still the supreme head of the Anglican Church because of this act in 1534. Meanwhile, back in 1533, Henry's already made the divorce and he's married a new woman, Anne Boleyn, after the annulment of his first marriage was granted by his new archbishop, Thomas Cramner. So Thomas Cramner is is a good reformed bishop. He wants to get out of the Roman Catholic Church. He does a lot of good. But he falls under the pressure here of Henry. Your king is telling you to do something. And so Thomas goes ahead and makes the divorce go through. Anne Boleyn gives birth to a daughter named Elizabeth, but no son. She does not produce a son. So he finds reason to accuse her of treason and off with her head. Then he's marrying another woman, Jane Seymour, who did give birth to a son, Edward VI. So finally, Henry has a son. But then Jane dies quickly after that. He would marry three more times before his death. So it's commonly thought Henry VIII, he had eight wives. He actually had six wives and a lot of mistresses. We don't even know how many mistresses he had. But there's Anne Boleyn. Jane Seymour produces a son, Edward IV. He'll be the next in line to rule. Back to William Tyndale now. Uh, We've already talked a bit about Tyndale, so I'm just going to go quick through this. He studied at Oxford. He lived during the time of the Reformation. He's not a reformer. He just comes right before it. He goes to Germany to get away from the persecution. That's where the king has him arrested. So he's arrested, put in jail. He continues to translate the Bible into English. In fact, much of what he writes is going to be the King James wording. Even though King James comes later, they're going to look back to Tyndale, who does the real first original English translation from Greek and from Hebrew. Here he is being strung up here, and you can kind of see the words come out of his mouth in a nice paper-like banner in this drawing. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And so they will burn him at the stake. Why? Because he's translating the Bible into English. No other reason. That is a treasonous offense to undermine the government, to undermine the church by doing that. The Roman Catholic Church, they see that as treason. And even though Henry's already working the church away from Rome at this time, he doesn't do it for theological reasons. He doesn't understand why the Bible needs to be in English. But he will eventually okay that and be fine with it. So now Henry goes into full pendulum swing. He breaks away from Rome. This leads to unrest in the country because how can the king just change our religion? There's violence. Cromwell isn't able to keep order. And eventually the news gets to Henry VIII. Henry gets a little uncertain of his reformed, uh, his reformations in the church. So he undoes some. He says, look, y'all can give transubstantiation another shot. You know, I took that away from y'all. Y'all want to believe that the bread becomes the body and the, blood becomes the, the wine becomes the blood. That's the Catholic transubstantiation of the Lord's Supper. You can have it back. You know, you want to keep celibacy of priests, that's fine. Even though later the Anglican priest could marry. Uh, you want to confess to a priest, keep that. So he gave them some of their things they love. The people, they love tradition. They love uh, going along with superstition. And to please them, he gave some of those things back to the people. Well, in 1540, Cromwell gets executed. He's accused of treason against the king. And then Henry really cut down on, restrict- he cut down on how easy the Bible could go out. So he restricted how available the Bible was. In 1543, he puts a new act forward, the advancement of true religion. And that restricted the Bible to those of noble birth. You had to be of nobility. In other words, a title. You had to have a title given to you by the king. Either a baron or a viscount or um, a duke or an earl or a prince. Those people could read the Bible, but no one else could. He died in 1547 and his nine-year-old son, Edward, becomes the king. So King Henry has a lot more to his life. But we don't care as much about the other things. We are looking at how he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. So you can already see the problem here. It's not a reformation from the inside out. This is a reformation imposed upon the people. So there's going to be lots of bumps along this road. It's the reason that Puritans start trying to purify the church further. Because it doesn't go enough into being reformed. It's a half-reformed church. Even today, you go to an Anglican church and a a more traditional Catholic-like Anglican service is going to feel very Roman Catholic. There's going to be robes. There's going to be maybe some statues in the building. It's going to feel very much the, the smoke, the holy water, and the priests have a very high authority. Here's Henry's final three wives. I think Anne of Cleves dies naturally. Catherine Howard has her head chopped off by the king, or he orders it. And finally, the sixth wife survives him. He dies before he can kill Catherine Parr. He really liked the name Catherine. That was three of his six wives were named Catherine, and two were named Anne. So here comes the son. He starts out at nine years old. So at nine, you know he's not making his own decisions for the kingdom. He's going to be taught and influenced by others. The good thing is he's influenced by Protestant people. His mother's family was Protestant. Remember, his mom was Jane Seymour. This is her son, but her family is Protestant, and his uncle, Edward Seymour, trains him up. He oversees even the king in office here. Edward had been brought up Protestant. He continues making more reforms because Henry was a little scared to go too far. He just wanted the divorce and then whatever else people wanted to do, he was sometimes okay with it, but other times not. These reforms included taking away the images out of the church and allowing the clergy to marry. So he says it's okay for an Anglican priest to marry. That's not found in Scripture that they have to stay celibate. He also asked Cramner who's still alive at this time, to revise the Book of Common Prayer. So the Book of Common Prayer is a prayer book. If you're familiar with, uh, what is it, the Puritan uh, Valley of Vision, it has prayers in it. But the Book of Common Prayer also tells you how to do your service, what kind of liturgy to say. It tells you the wording for a a funeral, the wording for a wedding. In fact, the traditional vows that we know uh, from weddings, and they're good, come out of the Book of Common Prayer. So there is some good Reformed language in there, but you're going to find later when we look at the Puritans that the common prayer book becomes very controversial because the monarchs say you have to follow everything in it. That's the problem. I will look at it and see, okay, what are the traditional marriage vows and ask the couple that I'm marrying, do you want to follow those? Do you want to make up your own? When you have to follow everything in the book and do your worship according to that, that's a problem. So at the same time, some Protestants, like John Knox, felt that that Book of Common Prayer was too Roman Catholic still. It still had too much Roman Catholic in it. And that's going to come up in church history. Now in 1550, wooden communion tables were replaced. Uh, They replaced the stone altars. So let's get those altars out of here. We're not sacrificing animals. Let's just get a table in to hold the communion elements at the front. This really breaks with Roman tradition because now the altar language is, is gone. And uh, the Protestant pastors began to replace the priests. So the priests either convert to the Ref- Reformation or um, they're fired. And the government now brings in pastors, which is a better term than priests for New Testament church leaders. Parliament repeals some of the Catholic legislation that that Henry VIII had put into effect. Remember, he kind of went back and said, okay, you can have some of these things. Well, now they took it away. So Edward VI is making some really good progress here. And that's under the influence of the Protestant people who really handled him. They were his his handlers in a sense. Uh, But the people were still resistant. We like our our um, tradition we like our superstition and the problem you can see is they don't have enough pastors and theologians teaching them what the bible says so they don't know they're just used to you come to church and the priest does his hocus pocus up there and he blesses you with the elements and then you go home being blessed well if you don't have a pastor who knows the bible you're going to struggle with understanding why these changes are happening well, the problem now we have is that Edward dies. He's very young. He dies in his teens. And there's a backlash building. And people are kind of tired of the Reformed Protestants pushing too hard, too fast in the church. So let's go back to Catherine of Aragon's um, child. Let's have a queen. And that's going to be Mary the First. Now, Catherine, what what do you you think Catherine is? um, Just look at the way she's dressed here. Do you think she's Protestant or Catholic? She's very Catholic. I don't know if that was the the headgear that they wore back then. (laughs) That has to be very interesting. It looks like it's smashing her head, but I'm sure it's very soft. Um, She's Catholic. In fact, her parents are Catholic of Catholics. We're talking Ferdinand and Isabella. You can't get more Catholic than them. Maybe the Pope's more Catholic than, than them, but that's about it. So she is staunchly Catholic. Her daughter is Mary the First, Mary. So Mary's going to be a staunch Catholic. In fact, how do you think she's going to feel about her dad? Is she going to be happy that her dad publicly embarrassed her mom by committing the first ever public divorce that the King of England had ever done? you think she's going to be happy with that? No, she's not. Well, before they um, bring Mary in, though, there's still enough Protestants in the government that they're able to bring somebody that's kin to Henry VIII, but not quite a direct descendant, and that's Lady Jane Grey. So Lady Jane Grey is a young woman. I think she's 17, and they promote her as the queen. So here's a, a real painting of her on the la- on my right, your right, and then on the left is a drawing later, based on these paintings of her. She's a Protestant. In fact, there have been Protestants later who've written biographies on her, because she died for the faith. In fact, she only ruled for nine days. So nine days, and the people who support Mary being queen uh, eventually get Mary installed. And Mary quickly says, well, this Jane, Lady Jane Grey, is a spy. She's got treason in her mind against the government. She's associated with all these other people trying to undermine my government. So they put her head on the block and chop it off with an axe. So this is a French painting from the 1800s uh, symbolizing that. So the nine-day queen is what she's called. She only ruled for nine days. And I believe she was 17, 16, 17, and she willingly put her head down on the block and uh, suffered for the faith, is what most people believe. So now we have Mary left. Mary's taken power. Mary has lots of supporters in the government, lots of people wanting to get back to Catholicism. And that's often what happens is you have the, the people are tired of this switching back and forth. Let's just go back to the old ways. That'll fix the problem, right? Well, here comes Mary, and she does not look very happy. Uh, She reigns from 1553 to 1558, so only five years. She went and repealed all of Edward's reforms, King Edward before her, and she attempted to connect back with Rome. She wanted to restore England to the church in Rome, to the Pope. Bring them back to the Catholic faith. Cramner was in the way because he's the archbishop. He's the uh, head bishop of all of the Anglican church. And so she accuses him of heresy, has him tried. He Initially, he recants of the faith. He says, okay, I don't believe in all these things, justification by faith. And then later, he feels really guilty about that. So he withdraws that, and they burn him at the stake. But he was at least faithful to his profession of faith at that point. So there he is. Uh, He did a lot with the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, did a lot with reforming, trying to reform the Anglican Church. Now Mary's getting really mad. You can see in this painting, she's not happy. And she's going to take it out on these reformed people who supported uh, her father's break from the church. Edward's supporters, Uh, she's going to marry a staunch Catholic, Philip II of Spain, to produce an heir. But of course, they never had a son, they never had an heir. After 1555, she begins to persecute Protestants, and she kills 283 Protestants at the stake. So she's looking for pastors, she's looking for theologians, scholars, who are translating the Bible in English, who are writing about justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Anybody who writes against the Catholic Church, they're brought up as a committing treason and they're burned at the stake. Or heresy, if she can get the, the church to declare that. So one Protestant ran away. He got away from this persecution. His name was John Fox. And he wrote, this inspired him to write Fox's Book of Martyrs. So he wrote about these martyrs of his day, and he went all the way back to the early church and wrote a history of people who had died for the faith. And he called her Bloody Mary. And that's what we refer to as today. She killed so many people, 300 Protestants roughly, in five years. In fact, the the drink Bloody Mary is named after her as well. She died childless in 1558, and she did not reconcile England to Rome. So we have lots of unrest in England due to the Reformation. We have switching back and forth. Is it going to go Protestant? Is it going to go back to the Catholic Church? Are are these people going to continue being burned at the stake? I mean, even the common Catholic wouldn't be too happy about that. Here's John Fox summarizing her life. We earnestly pray that the annals, the, the records of no country, Catholic or pagan, may ever be stained with such a reputation of human sacrifices to papal power, and that the detestation in which the character of Mary is holding may be a beacon to succeeding monarchs to avoid the rocks of fanaticism. So he says, look, even a Catholic country should not be burning people at the stake like this. We hope that never happens. And that every other leader in the world looks to Mary and realizes this is what happens when you're a fanatic for the Pope. He even says human sacrifices to the Pope. So then they look for another heir, another child of Henry's that can reign. And they find Elizabeth I. Elizabeth reigns for a long time, 1559 to 1603. And she is called the Virgin Queen. She never marries. She's the Elizabeth I. And there wasn't another Elizabeth until our times. We have Elizabeth II. Elizabeth I really brought in the Reformation to England. Her, you know, Ed, um, Henry VIII started it, but he didn't go far enough. Elizabeth, because she reigns for so long and there's so much peace and prosperity to her country, much can get done in her lifetime. Not that she's a big Reformed queen. She just wants the uh, Protestantism to do well because it helps her rule. And she observes the Protestant traditions, but she never cared much for theology necessarily. She called Parliament, her first year as queen, she calls Parliament to consider the creation of a new church, an official new church, not just a break from England, but a new church. And she passed the Reformation Bill, which undoes all the Catholic practices and names her now as the Supreme Head of the Church of England. And as I said, that continues till today. So, Henry VIII passes all these laws. His son keeps it for a bit. Mary comes in and undoes all that. Now, Elizabeth comes in and reaffirms much of what Henry VIII had done. Now, some in Parliament uh, resisted and they compromise. And so, she was good at uh, politics and she would understand look, I've got to compromise. Or she felt like that. Again, not so much because she loved Reformed reform theology. She wanted her country to be at peace, stop the bloodshed, and have prosperity. So she passes a new act of supremacy, and then later, uh, the act, well, the first act of uniformity. There'll be a more famous one much later. The act of supremacy calls her the supreme governor, and it brings sweeping reforms. Later, the act of uniformity will say you have to worship according to the Book of Common Prayer. The act of supremacy requires everyone now to go to church. See, today we, we just get used to people who want to go to church go, and that's really the way it should be. Like if you're Christ, you should be at church. Also, we have Christians who don't even want to go to church. In those days, she said, we're starting a new church, and every one of my citizens will go, and you have to be at church. There's good and bad to this. Obviously, lots of people are going to be saved because they have to attend church and they have to listen and they come upon some Reformed preachers, some Puritans. They hear a sermon, they're converted. Others will come to church, get into leadership and do some really dumb things because they're unbelievers, unconverted. Uh, Because Elizabeth reigned for 40 years, she was able to enact lasting changes as opposed to Mary who had only reigned for five years. Virginia, the colony of Virginia, is named after her. She's the virgin queen. And they are settling in America under her time period or right after her. And they name places. Elizabethtown and and many things after this queen. Her nation becomes very prosperous. She defeats the French Armada, the most powerful navy in the world, gets defeated by a storm, And suddenly, England becomes the most powerful nation after the Spanish are defeated. It's during her reign that the Puritans start to grow. The movement begins. And what they want is they want a more reformed church. And they say, finally, we have a queen who cares about reforming the church. So they get together and they try and it doesn't go very well for them. And people start making fun of them saying, you care too much about doctrine." You care too much about worship. You're a Puritan. And later they say, oh, I kind of like that name. I'll take the name Puritan. And then, of course, today Puritan is often known as a bad a bad word again. You're very Puritanical in your theology. That's supposed to be bad. The Puritans were Protestants and they wanted to take these reforms farther. They, they knew what had happened with Calvin. They knew what had happened in Geneva. And they're looking at their church saying, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Let's keep reforming the church. So they opposed the Book of Common Prayer for the most part. That got them in trouble. As well as the episcopacy, the, the church govern, government, the whole bishops and rectors and all these different layers that you had. They would become very important in the English Civil War that we'll look at next week. And even in the American church, because who brought the theology to America? The pilgrims which were, you don't learn this in public school, but when I was a kid, I thought, you know, pilgrims, they were persecuted. They came to America. They started a new nation. We never were taught what they believed and what they were persecuted for. Why were they persecuted? Not just for Christianity, because they wanted to worship according to the Bible. They wanted to preach the theology that was from the Bible. And the later king will not approve of that. By the way, I didn't mention it, but Henry VIII, you know what he did when he took the nation away from the Roman Catholic Church? You know what he did? He raided all the churches and he got all the money that was in there, including the monasteries. And what did monasteries have? They had all the relics. So he put a lot of money into his coffers by raiding the monasteries. He gave the monasteries away. He sold them. Uh, There's not a lot of monasteries today compared to other European countries. I mean, the Catholics have come back in and, and put monasteries there, but the old ones, the, the schools even like Oxford and Cambridge, Catholic schools, Oxford especially, is now a Protestant university. And so he's taking them away from the Roman Catholic Church. Even Catholics today are not happy about that. And historians really aren't, because a lot of stuff disappeared. There were, there were things that would be neat if we could see them and study them. And they, they just disappeared in the, the raiding of the monasteries. Lastly, I just want to briefly touch on John Knox. John Knox is going to go north, north of England to Scotland. And he is going to be the first reformer there. The one that brings about all the change in Scotland. Now, it's associated with the English Reformation. It's, it's not completely separate. He will be in England for some time. I don't have as much time to go through all of his life, but there is a general outline here. He converts to to Protestantism in 1546 and 47. If I recall, he's serving as a bodyguard for a reformed pastor, a priest who had been converted and is now preaching the truth. And of course, there's all these battles and skirmishes and the Catholic uh, leaders of Scotland are trying to kill this guy and Knox carries a sword around and protects his man there and eventually he, he gets away from that before that group is killed and he ends up being converted because he's sitting in church one day and everybody knows that he loves the truth and he speaks so well they tell him the gospel he gets converted and eventually they say look you better get up and start preaching and he says me and they said, Yeah, you are now a preacher. And that was how he got called into ministry. Anyway, back to his overall life. He gets saved. He gets then sold to the French galley ship to be a slave. So, because of his faith and who he's associated with, he doesn't get killed, but he gets put on the ship. And he has to row that ship underneath and survive those two years where a lot of people die. Then he gets off the slave ship and spends quite a few years in England. And he is improving. His theology. Then he goes to Frankfurt, Germany. Then Geneva where he trains under Calvin. That's why his statue is there in Geneva as well. He becomes known as a good preacher. A great preacher. He comes back then to Scotland. And he really gets serious about reforming the nation. He runs into conflict with a different Mary. This is Mary, Queen of Scots. She is a Catholic as well. She's not chopping off heads though. And burning people at the stake. She's a little more docile. He really reacts strongly against her and even brings her to tears one time in one of his sermons. And then in his final years, he has established a Reformed church and he begins to implement all these new practices, which becomes the Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Now, one of his first writings is against the Queen. And he really had issue with queens. He said women should not rule over a nation. And he wrote this book, The First Blast of the Trumpet, Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. People look at this and say, you know, what what a woman hater he was. Well, he doesn't hate women. He's going after the fact that this queen has all this power and he's trying to make the argument she shouldn't be the leader of the nation. By Mr. John Knox... Minister of the Gospel at Edinburgh. This is the titles they used to have. uh, To which is added the contents of the second blast. And that's strong language. A blast against her. And a letter from John Nock to the people of Edinburgh. 1573. And then 1 Timothy 2.12. But I suffer not a woman to teach. Nor to usurp authority over the man. So he's taking the the verse, which really has to do with the church. And he's saying, look, that applies to the nation as well. He did not win a lot of um, supporters from Mary's government or from Mary. And even a lot of the reformed people were a little unsure because here they are in England and they have this queen who's Protestant and she's blessing them and doing all these good things. And our brother reformed pastor, Mr. Knox, is blasting uh, this woman, women being... Queens over a nation. Here's a a famous painting of him. He is preaching. And you even have these Catholic guys with their pointy hats. Um, It wasn't such a clear cut. You didn't have, oh, there's the Reformed Church and there's the Catholic Church. There's just one church and you go in and start preaching and people get converted and that keeps happening. And eventually there's no more Catholics there because they've left and they've gone somewhere else to do their worship. And so here he is preaching. I think that might even be the, the queen there on the front row. Um, everybody's going to church. He's known for getting out over the pulpit. I don't know about the, the flaming robes. I don't think they had fans that blew on the robes. So that's just a little action there with the robes going back. But he would be known for getting out over the pulpit like Steve Lawson does today. If You know Steve Lawson? He does that right there. He was very fiery. You can read his sermons today and get a sense of how fiery he was. As long as you take these F looking things and realize they're S's. You see that? That's monstrous regiment, not monf- monstrous. The older English print would print an S um, in the middle of a word, looks more like an F. Supposedly, and, I, and I, I don't know if this was in a private session, I think it was, or in a church session. But he gets an audience just with Mary, the Queen of Scots. And he preaches the word to her so convicting that even though she's not saved by it, she's in tears. And it's kind of said, look, he could even bring the Queen of Scotland to tears with his preaching. She was that convicted. But she didn't. She wasn't converted. Here's what Ian Murray says about Knox. One thing stands out above all else in the life of John Knox. At many different points in his life, uh, we have the comment of individuals, other people, who saw and heard him. And the testimony, most frequently repeated, has to do with one point, namely, the power of his preaching. That's how he won over Scotland. He actually would say, give me Scotland or I die. Meaning, give me Scotland for the gospel, for Christ. And he was so fiery with his preaching, that that's the thing people always remembered. The only true explanation of Knox's preaching is in words he applied to others of his fellow countrymen. God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. So that's what he would tell people about great preaching. It's through the Spirit that God gave. To read Knox is to be convicted at the small, of the smallness of our faith and the power of the Word of God. This is from uh, Murray's book, A Scottish Christian Heritage. It's out of print, so sorry, can't get that one, unless you buy it used somewhere. But I will recommend some resources to help you. I think at this point going forward, I'll be recommending a lot of good books. Because two things, the printing press really gets rolling during this era. And so we have a lot of their writings and sermons being published. And then today, people can go back and look at all that content and, and write books for us today. You could also go back and try to read some of this. Knox's that I think you can get it electronically on Logos, and maybe he's still in print from Banner of Truth, the works of John Knox. But let's just start with very simple ones. Sometimes we look at kids' books and we say, oh, those are for the children, and uh, we don't, we don't want to get those. But you can learn a lot from kids' books, and some of us adults haven't read anything about a man like John Knox. So to get Simonetta Carr's book, the brown one there on the left will teach you a lot. In fact, that's probably, what you say, young teenagers, probably, because it's got a lot of, of words, not just all pictures. And Simonetta Carr has done a good work with all of these books. She has a series. And I think we have all of these three in our bookstore. But uh, we try to get some of these resources for kids and adults buy them for their kids and grandkids, but they also read them. So that's a great resource to start with. Also, there's a little box set. It has one of John Knox and one of John Calvin in here called Reformers and Activists. It's a trailblazer series. And then Steve Lawson wrote a book a few years ago, a real short little book on John Knox's fearless faith. So if you want to know more about Knox, since we didn't have time to cover it all here, look for those books. And now let's broaden it out to some other people. Uh, J.C. Ryle's book on five English reformers is a great little book. It doesn't cover the main popular guys that we often hear about. It covers those guys, I think, like uh, Bilney and some of the lesser-known men, Ridley, and those men who were burned at the stake who were early reformers. The Daring Mission of William Tyndale by Steve Lawson. This thing's been out of print. It was so popular, they sold them all out, and they had to print some more, and it's taken six months, a year. We finally were able to get a replacement in our bookstore but. The Daring Mission of William Tyndale. And then Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ Power. I recommended that when we started church history back in October. This is a four-volume set that covers all of church history. This volume three focuses on the Renaissance and the Reformation. What's going on in Europe at that time and how the Reformation comes about. And that's a very popular book because I recommend that one a lot here in our church. That set. All of these, though, I recommend. Um, read church history. We've got we to gotta read more church history. We've got to be excited by what men and women did before us. And we need to be motivated by Scripture, yes. By service to Christ, yes. But we can learn so much from others who went before us. No questions? English Reformation. So England's reformed, but they're not fully reformed. They're not what we think of today. If you if you walk into an Anglican church, you'll know that. And even the Anglican church has been reformed more over the years than it was back then. Okay, t- let's look at a timeline to get us started on the, the Puritans here. This timeline starts with uh, basically 1517 on the left there is when the 95 theses are posted by Martin Luther. Then Zwingli starts in 1519 in Zurich. Then Calvin comes to Geneva in 1536. Around the same time as when Henry VIII is trying to change things in England that we just looked at. Then you see Edward VI becomes king of England in 1547. Bloody Mary, 1553. Elizabeth in 1558. And now that starts right after she becomes queen. That begins what's known as the Puritan movement or the Puritan era the Puritan era. They were seeking to purify the church and they wanted to remove some of those elements that were still there from the Catholic tradition. And so this goes on over a hundred years, this movement. It'll become so popular and and we can say powerful in the government that the government takes over the country and it's a Puritan government. And the, the Puritans refer to that as the Golden Age because there's no king, there's no queen, and the church is suddenly free to worship and reform itself. It doesn't last very long, but there is a little age there where the Puritans reign and rule over the country. And then before that, we have James I. He's made king of England in 1603. You know what James I is famous for, right? He commissioned a new translation of the English Bible, and it's known as the King James Bible. Or the King James Version. Not that he was all that um, spiritual or sanctified, but he did call it to to gather, call the men to gather together, and he got his name on it. It wasn't very popular. We might come to that with the King James. It's not very popular in the beginning, and he has to suppress and get rid of all the other Bibles that are better than his. But eventually it catches on and gets taken to America. All right, 1642 through 49, that's when there's a civil war between Parliament and the king. Parliament is mostly filled with Puritan or Presbyterian uh, members of Parliament. They take over in 1642, really, and go all the way up to 1660, when Charles II comes back into power. And now he really persecutes the remaining Puritans. And then they're free to worship as they want. You can do and, and behave however you want in church, and suddenly the Puritan movement dies. It's like without any persecution, nobody's really concerned about continuing to purify the church. And they've even done uh, historical studies where 50, 100 years later, a lot of those great Puritan churches became heretical. Like Matthew Henry. Y'all have heard of Matthew Henry, his commentary? Matthew Henry, one of the most famous commentary sets ever published. His church, he was around 1700. His church by the 18, by 1800 was heretical. They did not believe in the Trinity. And it's, it's thought that because there's no persecution to drive people looking to the word and trusting in Christ, that that sort of kills the movement. Now, it does come to America, and it lasts a little longer here. If you want to carry it up through uh, Jonathan Edwards. And some will say, look, Spurgeon is a Puritan. You know, he read the Puritans. He's not quite Puritan like that, but he does love the Puritans. All right, we have no time left. So that's where we're going next week. And then after that, I want to do a session just on the Puritan men and the writers and and the books. There was a, a man over at our house the other day. And we were talking about John Owen, and I took him up to my office. and We just looked at all the Puritan volumes, and it just reminded me these men wrote some really good works that we need to be reading. In fact, Book of the Month is what? Puritan paperback. Today they've chopped them into little paperback books that you can grab and, and read. So I hope to go through that in a, in a couple of weeks. Let's close out with prayer. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning. We're thankful as English-speaking people that the Reformation came to England, that it did eventually take root there, and that men sought to continue to reform it. and even came to America and, and did the same. We are Grateful that we can worship you according to Scripture. We have the freedom to do that. And help us to persevere in the faith, even though we're not persecuted like many of these folks were. We do care about the Bible. We do care about keeping the faith. So help us to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.